Well, welcome today. It's good, to, good for us to be here. Um, gosh, I think we should open up line dancing um, during that one song. That was awesome. I was ready to get in a hoedown. Uh, two things. Uh, we, uh, Carol and I, during the, during the break time there that Jackie gave us, uh, met a couple visitors here today. So I bragged on some of them. You're the uh, friendliest church we've ever been in, so don't let, let, don't let them down. I already gave you that reputation. And, so uh, glad you're here. And also, um, we're just happy to be here because coming out of Billings this morning, it was bad. Uh, it had rained last night, then froze into freezing rain. And luckily, there was a little snow had started to fall, so that covered up the, uh, what do you call it, black ice. And so until we got south of Belfry, it was, I was thinking we were going to be here about 1020, but luckily, uh, it cleared up across the uh, bench, the famous bench, right? Um, the antelope were being blown across the road, too, at the same time. Um, and we got here except for Skull Creek. See, I'm learning these things. Skull Creek Hill, is that it? Pass? And that was, couldn't see two feet in front of your head. So we're, we're uh, happy to be here today. Um, and if you're visiting uh, or only been here a little bit, I'm Steve Petzl. Uh, I'm on staff at Faith Chapel in Billings, Montana, my beautiful wife, Carolyn. And uh, we have the privilege of being interim pastors here as God's leading, and we're praying for God to send you the, their, your next uh, pastor, and that'll shepherd this church into the next chapter for this, this church and what God has for it. And I'm always marveling at how many of you paid such a great price to move all the way here from the uh, West Coast to come and help plant this church, and then God has added to it over the years. And so it's a privilege to be here. Um, also, tomorrow is Veterans Day, and I don't know this congregation very well yet, but we probably have some veterans here that have served somewhere in the military, and uh, first of all, we want to thank you for your service for our country. We live in our freedoms because uh, you have served and served along those that have made, paid the ultimate price, and so if you wouldn't mind not to uh, single you out or embarrass you, but to honor you if you have been in the military or are a mother or a father or a brother or sister or aunt and uncle of someone who has given their life in the service of this country, would you stand? If you've been in the military or you've been... All right. Well, let's give these people a hand. There we go. Amen. Thank you, men, for serving. Thank you so much. Let me just uh, pray for our veterans and our, especially those overseas today. We're in a time of almost endless war. So, Lord, we uh, thank you for our country we thank you for these three among us who have served you faithfully and laid their lives on the line uh, to keep our borders secure, to uh, keep peace in the world, and to let um, righteousness and goodness triumph and evil be brought down. And Lord, we lift up our young men and women and even our older men and women who are overseas, away from families as they approach this holiday season. Lord, May they know we appreciate them. May you be with them. We pray that you would anoint the chaplains of all of the branches of service, that they would, uh, especially this holiday season, be able to preach the gospel, see men and women come to you and lay their lives on the line. Uh, as they lay their lives on the line, they'll understand how you were the ultimate soldier, Lord, and laid your life down to defeat the kingdom of darkness and to win our freedom to serve you and love you, Lord. So just bless our military, bless all the chiefs of staff, the Pentagon, and our uh, president who presides over all our military forces, Lord, give him wisdom. So we love you, Lord, in your name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you for doing that. I know my, Carolyn's, our, our dads were both World War II veterans, and uh, both served, Carolyn's dad was shot down over France, great, gravely injured smuggled out by the French underground to a, uh, a boat and waited for days and days and days to be transported to military uh, hospital to be, uh, to be worked on for all of his broken bones and things. And, and my dad flew 60 missions over Germany. And uh, we, have, uh, we come from a great honored group of, in our family. Well, um, any other, sometimes we wait for the end for, we're gonna have announcements, Lance? Okay, we will do that. And I noticed that we got Christmas shoeboxes are out there, so we'll be part of that. All right, so we're in the book of Jonah, and we're starting on chapter 4 today. And uh, it's been a great journey. 
I, um, something, my wife was gone last week, and uh, to make up for it, I preached too long. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> my wife wondered if, uh, it's just shocking to go and look at the podcast and go, I spoke that long. So uh, I apologize for that, and we'll be much uh, briefer. I've gone over every week, so I think I'm done right now. Um, that's it. It makes up for uh, the total minutes I'm given a month, and uh, it's over. Thank you. You're welcome to go home now. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got to do something because we all drove here. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, let's, we're going to... Um, um, I, what I'm doing is keeping my clock on here so I can watch myself. Um, so this story and this journey through Jonah, just four little chapters, maybe just occupying maybe as few as three pages in your Bible, depending on the size of your print or type, maybe just two pages, is uh, an amazing book with real deep lessons from God and deep lessons for all of us. And so I'm going to read chapter 4 in its totality and then let us pray for God as we go into that study. Whoop, let's go. Wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, let's go to the next page. Oh, there we go. Let's read this and then we'll go back. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And what seemed wrong was that God relented and punishing Nineveh. They repented and so he wasn't now going to destroy them. So, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, it is right for you to be, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Next page. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. But when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left? And also many animals. Now, before we leave that page, this is one of the few books in the Bible. Uh, well, there's others, but, but one of the few more prominent ones that ends with a question. It doesn't end with a resolve. It doesn't at the end go, and God is good all the time, and everything worked out perfectly. Boom, boom. Okay, Justin, symbol crash. You know, it doesn't like, it doesn't end with a resolve. There's some Psalms that don't do this. And there's some of the parables that Jesus taught that end in questions. Jesus was better at asking questions of us to get us to face reality and to admit the truth than he was, uh, than he, he was more concerned many times asking us questions than he was just telling us the answer. Because he knows that if we arrive and see the truth, it's much deeper in us and we gather it greater in our hearts. And so look at how this ends. And, not, and, and a lot of animals that don't know the right from the left and so many animals and this place is so lost. And we'll talk about what all this means uh, as we go through it. So let's go back to that first slide. Michael, we'll go back and it says, okay, so chapter three ends with this. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them the destruction he had threatened. So quick review, Jonah, a prophet of God, God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach judgment on Nineveh unless they repent. 
Jonah said, no way, God. That would be like going into the terrorist camp and saying, God loves you and repent. It's a suicide mission. I won't do that. Plus, I hate these people. I don't want them to have mercy and grace. So he goes down to Joppa, jumps in a ship, and sails to Tarshish as far away as you can get from, from uh, Nineveh. And in the middle of that, God sends a storm. The storm is because of Jonah's rebellion, and Jonah's running the other way. The sailors on the boat realize it. Jonah admits to it. They, the only way to save the ship, uh, one of the bright parts of Jonah, uh, Jonah's character we see here is, yeah, kill me instead of everybody perish. Throw him overboard. He knows it's over. He now calls out for the mercy of God, gets swallowed by a big fish, and in there realizes it's only by mercy and grace that he's alive. He deserves to die, but God relented and gave him peace and mercy. But in the middle of that prayer, he says, but at least I'm not bad like those Ninevites, those ones that serve false, uh, false idols and other gods. And so God has a fish spit him out on the beach, and then God's word comes to him a second time, now go preach, and this time Jonah goes, he preaches the second time, and, and now here we are, and the people repent, and they turn away. And at the end of chapter uh, 3, near the end there, uh, the king gets up and puts on sackcloth and ashes, orders the whole kingdom to repent, and they do, and God relents and doesn't judge them. Success. So this is success. So this would be like, what, what do you think the response would be? If you were an artist, and all of a sudden, the biggest art gallery in New York says, we want your paintings in our gallery to sell. You'd say, success, what I'm good at, what I, where my creative is, how God gifted me, success. Or if you were a musician and all of a sudden they asked you to come to Carnegie Hall and pre uh, perform your songs, you'd say, that's great. And now here's Jonah. Jonah preached to them, and if they repent, it should be success. But Jonah goes, I don't even want to live. It's just like, what? You see the craziness of it. He's a, he, it. The thing he's called to do, that God's gifted him to do, it works, and he has success in it, and it's just wrong for Jonah. So we know there's a deep heart problem in Jonah. Instead of rejoicing that the people repented, he angry. In that, when we read chapter um, 4, I think at least three times in there, he says, let me die. I want to die. I'd be better off dead. All right. Now we just lost something here. Did we lose? Oh, okay, that's right. We're, uh, that, oh, that means my minutes are up. Okay, that's it. Okay, we're done. Okay. Was that worth your drive? N not yet. Okay. Hold on. Oh, we got, we accidentally turned off the projector. So, um, this whole thing is what, this last chapter shows us that something's deeply wrong. But also, let me say up front, that the journey of grace the journey to understand grace is, uh, it takes a lifetime for us. I have been marveling over the last few months that I, it's like I've never known the gospel before. It's like, I didn't understand this before. I really, it's amazing. I live by the grace and mercy of God. And it's like, I've, it's like that's what saved me. That's what gave my heart to the Lord. That's what... I knew he would forgive me even though I didn't deserve it. We're still not back. Okay. Didn't deserve it. And so, uh, but as we grow and God works deeper and deeper in our hearts to understand his grace, then uh, it's like it's all new. It's like I've never known it was this beautiful. I've never known it was this grace, this good. If you notice Paul, if you read the New Testament, Paul starts off uh, writing some of his early books, and our Bibles, unfortunately, are not in chronological order, but um, are we back yet? Nope. Maybe God really is saying it's over. Okay. Uh, in, the in the chronological order, if you read Paul's letters in the chronological order, the older he gets, the later letters he wrote, he said, I am the greatest sinner of all. I'm a great sinner. He understands his, his failure to God more and more. Maybe the bulb burned out. You think... Oh, wait, there it is. Bin Q. All right. So um, as we get older and older, God reveals that to us. Maybe I should just quit talking and fumbling around and wait for the thing to come back on. Oh, there we go. All right. Oh, and we got extra little stuff on the left. That's cool. Okay. All right. Here we go. Okay. So Jonah should be rejoicing. 
that the preaching. Yeah, thank you, thank you. God said, no, go ahead, preach a little more. All right. Jonah should be rejoicing at his preaching was such a great success, but Jonah wants to die. Okay, let's go two slides further past uh, chapter three. One more. Okay. So this is called the meltdown of Jonah. By many scholars, it's like he should be rejoicing. He's not. This is his meltdown. So now the word Yahweh is the covenant name that Israel used for God whenever they were talking to him about this personal relationship that he was their God they are his people, and he chose them out of all the people of the earth through Abraham to be the vessel of understanding his love and grace and mercy and bringing, ultimately, Jesus to the whole world. So they, whenever they talk about that deep relationship and love that God had for Israel and Israel has for God, they use the word Yahweh. We don't see that in our English Bibles because we kind of translate all the different words for God the same, either Lord, God, Father, those kind of things. Now, the name that's used by people who are not in covenant relationship with God, or if the Jews are trying to explain who this God is, they use the word Elohim. Elohim. Now, since, the, since chapter 2, we haven't seen the word Yahweh used again, but now we come back to the word Yahweh, meaning Jonah's trying to understand this covenant relationship with God and how he could love the Ninevites who were the terrorist state and who wanted Israel dead. So he returns to using this word, and it says there in 4.2, um, I'll read it to you again real quickly. Uh, it said, isn't that what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Isn't that what I said, Yahweh, this, you love the Jewish people and we love you? And when I was at home, that's why I didn't want to go to them, because I know you'd get them off the hook, and they deserve to die. Now, Jonah could not see that the grace of God saved him from the sea and gave him a second chance. The same grace uh, should be offered to Nineveh. He only wanted judgment on the Assyrians. No mercy, no grace. He's like the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 25. So let's read that parable that Jesus teaches hundreds of years later to uh, his followers when he's trying to explain this grace of God. All right, the parable of the unmerciful servant, because this is really a picture of who Jonah is here. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I hope you all know that means 78 times you don't have to do the forgiveness. 77 is like a way of saying forever, right? Forever and ever, you will always be people who need to forgive because you've been forgiven. So then he tells them this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. Now notice the big difference, 10,000 bags of gold versus 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Next page. Next slide. Okay. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged because they just saw the master forgive him of all this gold. So they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
or could we read, go back to verse 32? says, that, oh, no, you were there. Just go up back. I'll read. How about if I read verse 32 this way? Then God called to Jonah and said, you wicked prophet. I canceled that debt of yours of running away from what I asked you to do because you begged me to do that as you were sinking into the sea and were going to drown. Shouldn't you, Jonah, have mercy on the Ninevites just as I had on you? All right, do you see how it's just like what Jonah's going through? Verse 34, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So forgiveness, the one thing we don't talk a lot, at least I don't understand about forgiveness, and it's not always on uh, the first thing that comes to me, is forgiveness is based in grace. Forgiveness is realizing how much you've been forgiven. Therefore, what right do you have to hold anything against anybody? Because we all deserve to be thrown overboard. We all deserve to be judged. We have all fallen. The, the line of, of sinfulness and evil runs through all of us. And if it wasn't for God, uh, mercy and grace, we'd all be there. We all say that, maybe we don't all say, but most of us at times have said, except for the grace of God, there go I. And, uh, and it's, it is like that needs to be remembered in us. And that's, that's a basis of our forgiveness is the forgiveness and grace we've received from God. Okay, let's go on. So God's patience. So in the meltdown of Jonah, God continues to be merciful and patient with Jonah, almost like a therapist. So this time he doesn't send another storm, right? He got, he's saying, I want to die. I knew you'd forgive those people. Ugh. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. And God instead, he could have just, God could have went zap, and that's it. Jonah just be a puff of smoke and is gone, okay? Could have done that, but God in his mercy and grace, now instead of sending a sandstorm or something that uh, a wild animal to attack Jonah, he's very gentle this time in trying to deal with Jonah's heart problem. So he uh, is kind of like a therapist, and he says, uh, do you do well to be angry? Could you see Jonah laying on the couch and then God saying, Jonah, this anger isn't good for you. This is not, is it going to shorten your life? This bitterness in you is not what I created you to be. I created you to be my prophet, to take my word and tenderness to people, my love, even those that you hate. And I'm going to send my son and he's going to teach us about this even greater in the future. But could you see how Jesus, if he had been there when Jonah was, and we got to give Jonah a little break. He's way the other side of the cross. He would not hear Jesus say, turn the other cheek. He would not say, if they ask you to go a mile, go too. He would not say, if they ask you for your coat, give them your shirt too. And so he's still functioning in trying to understand God's grace and mercy and love. But uh, he had, his people had received it. And so he should have been a little more in tune, but... Uh, God's gentle with him here. Jonah still has a great deal of self-righteousness. His inordinate anger at God, relenting, reveals a heart issue. He's still self-righteous. He's still saying they deserve punishment and death. They don't deserve your mercy and grace. But what he'd really be saying is, uh, I know you've forgiven me a thousand bags of gold, but these people, they're in debt, just only a hundred silver coins, and you should wipe them out. Now, let me talk about patriotism. It's ironic that it's the day before Veterans Day when it should be one of our most patriotic days. It's a day we thank God for America. But patriotism can become an idol. That when our country, our safety, our way of life is greater than following God's voice, patriotism can actually be lifted to the level of an idol. And what is an idol? An idol is anything, there's many definitions for idol, but suffice it for this study to say an idol is anything that we give our allegiance and our love to and want to follow more than we want to follow God. That's a sure sign of an idol. And so Jonah has this Israeli patriotism that hates the terrorist state of Nineveh, which seems very normal to us. We live in a day and age of of terrorism and 
he's saying, I don't want to go. I knew this is what you'd do. I don't care about these people. I don't want them receiving mercy and grace. They deserve to die. And so at that point, the patriotism in Jonah has reached the level of an idol. When you wish, when our wish, the second, uh, the third, fourth bullet point there, the second part, when our wish for justice for our enemies blinds us to mercy and forgiveness, then we have crossed the line into idolatry. Tim Keller writes it this way, when Christian believers care more about their own interests and security that for the, than for the good or salvation of other races and ethnicities, they are sinning from Jonah. They are sinning like Jonah. So uh, we always got to be concerned about even our biggest enemies overseas or even within our country. We need to be wise. We protect ourselves. We have armed forces. We do all those things. But by and large, we can lose our mercy and grace and God's forgiveness for others in the midst of our patriotism. All right, let's go on. All right, Jonah's misuse of the Bible. Now, one thing it's pretty hard to see here is that Jonah quotes the Bible back to God, but he leaves out part of the scriptures. Now, I don't know if you've done that. I've done that to myself to justify my own point of view. I will say something about the Bible. It's only part of the Bible to make me feel like, yeah, I understand this, and actually self-righteous, like, I got this. We see, who does this to Jesus, just quotes part of the Bible, and Jesus has to bring in the whole Bible to fight the misuse of the Bible. Satan, Satan right? And, and where else? Who else? Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees, Sadducees. And then also one of the most blatant is the temptation of the wilderness. Jesus is out there 40 days. Satan comes to him with scriptures that seem in themselves, yeah, that's right. You shouldn't have to be suffering like this. If you, this is wrong. God is not treating you right, Jesus. And then, but Jesus then quotes all of scripture to him. And that leads him through those 40 days of suffering. So he returns from the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit and anointed. So Jonah is misusing the Bible here too. It's a little hard to see. But let us go through it. So in, in verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. To flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious, I highlighted in gold here, the kind of the common words that are used in the, uh, explaining God and who Jonah says. A gracious God, merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, what he's really quoting is many of the lines that were written by Moses in Exodus. Here's one place where Moses wrote about God, Exodus 34, the five attributes of God throughout the Old Testament. It's hard sometimes to find all five of them in one place, but in uh, Exodus 34, verse, uh, I think it's six, we find these. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming so God passes and God says this about himself the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin and so those are very parallel and comparable to the words that Jonah quotes up there in gold the gold words down in Exodus that Moses that God speaks about himself his attributes but now in red is the part that Mo Jonah leaves out. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So Jonah's going, uh, I know you're compassionate. I know you'll just forgive. And you'll never, this, I didn't get my way that these people should be fried right now. Jonah left out the part that says, but someday I know justice comes to all. In the red, God even says about himself that I do not leave the guilty unpunished. There is a judgment day. There is justice that will be served. Jonah leaves that out saying, because he wants to say, see, this is why I'm so angry. If he said those words in red back to God, he would go, yeah, but I shouldn't be because I know someday everybody will have to pay the price. And maybe even the Ninevites will if they haven't completely repent, repented. So, Leaving out part of scripture, Jonah's justifying himself and saying, God, I know you're just merciful and you're never going to fry these people. Okay, let's go on. Now, 
Jonah left out the last part of the description of God. He selectively used the Bible to justify his emotions. He wanted to show God that he was right. And Tim Keller writes this, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, I love this quote, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we are misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. I don't know how many times I sat down to read the Bible in my quiet time and I got up and went, yeah, that I'm, I'm one of God's chosen people and I've got it together. That's, I'm misusing the Bible. The Bible should always humble me before God, make me fall on my knees and say, I live by your grace and mercy and cause me to be more in love with God and to understand I don't deserve his love and mercy, but he's given it to me. So we all have to remember that. Jonah's misuse of the Bible, and it can happen to all of us. Really, Jonah is all of us. What's the feminine of Jonah? Joanna? <laughs> so we're all either Jonah's and Joanna's somewhere in our hearts. That's what I love about the Bible is I'll read the characters that don't get it right, and that's when I stand up from my Bible feeling more righteous. At least I understand God that way. Instead of reading the Bible and go, oh, Jonah is in me. I am Jonah. And, and that we need to see that in us at all times. All right, let's go on. Now, the providence of God. We, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. But in chapter 4, you really see it. Remember, the, the providence is uh, to supply what is needed, to give sustenance and to support, and the providence of God shows his control over creation and providing what is needed even miraculously. So we see it here in chapter 4 and verse 6, the plant. He grows this plant overnight in the desert, kind of a miracle. The worm, he provides the next day to eat up the plant. The scorching wind after the plant dies. And then, of course, we go back to chapter 1. He provides the fish to swallow Jonah to save his life. All right, let's go on. Now, the plant. In Hebrew, it's gigayon. If we're pronouncing that right, I have no idea. Gigayon. It's a shade plant. The literal translation is provided a shade plant. Uh, people have speculated, scholars who know, who are also biblical scholars and botanists, have tried to figure out what this plant is. The King James misinterprets it, calls it a gourd. It's probably rickinus or rickinus. The castor oil plant, the reason they believe this is it grows in that country, it grows extremely fast, and it provides huge leaves. I know Carol and I have grown it in our gardens back in Iowa when we lived there, and it's where we get castor beans from, which are deadly poison, but where we get castor oil from, which is supposed to uh, be given to you when you've been a bad boy. Okay, or ever hear about, does anybody take castor oil anymore? No, no. It's supposed to taste bad, but when we were kids, if you, if you were sick, you either got two things from the front end castor oil, from the back end an enema. Okay, and that's, right, just, I, sorry, too much information, Pastor Steve. All right, now, uh, keep going, keep going. So, castor oil was kind of a, an elixir, you know, it's supposed to cure everything. So they think it was a castor plant. There's a picture of it. Okay, it's quick-growing, very shady plant. Jonah grows to, uh, grows to watch in case God changes his mind and judges Nineveh. So why would Jonah go over this hill uh, overlooking this great city of Nineveh? He's overlooking it, and he's waiting there. It says he built himself a shelter, but obviously it didn't keep out all the sun, and the plant provided much more shade and coolness. Plants also have transpiration. They put moisture in the air. It would have felt better for Jonah in this desert setting. The only reason he could be there is he's hoping it will still get fried, that Nineveh will still get judged by God even though they've turned. He should have just turned around, went home back to Israel, but instead he camps out over, over Nineveh watching to see what will happen to this place. All right, so let's go on. God weeps for Nineveh. So, now notice says God does because Jonah doesn't. Jonah loves what the plant has provided to meet his needs. But it was provided and given, and he did not labor for it. Why would Jonah so fall in love with this plant when he put no work into it? Because it's totally a gift from God, and he should have realized that. So, in the same way, God's trying to give him a visible lesson of what's wrong in his heart. 
And God loves the people of Nineveh even more than Jonah loves the plant. He created them. He labors for them. He calls them and he weeps for them. The most amazing thing about God is all the gods of those days about the God Yahweh, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that the gods of all, of all the tribes and people around Israel in those days, one common thing, gods don't get emotionally involved with people. Gods don't, they just don't do that. They have their own life up there. They have their own wives. They have their own kids. They have their own wars. When there were thunderstorms, oh, the gods are fighting. When something goes wrong on the earth, it's because the gods are fighting or gods are mad at us. But it was never like they're emotionally attached to us. You did your sacrifices to all the Roman gods, the Greek gods. It was to appease them. And hopefully some way they would relent from, from calamity upon us. We would give them uh, certain sacrifices so that our seeds would grow. They'd give them certain sacrifices so that rain would grow, the crops would come, that their children would be fruitful, multiply, all those things. But what's different about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he gets emotionally involved with people. He loves us. He, he weeps for us. We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in the New Testament. God loves us. And so he, the book of Jonah provides, proves that the Bible is not a melodrama. What's, have you ever been to a melodrama? You know what that is? There's always the evil Bart, Black Bart, right? And then there's always Dudley Do-Right. And there's always the heroine. And, Dudley, and Black Bart ties the heroine to the railroad, what's a good heroine name? Melody, Penelope, ties her to the railroad tracks, <laughs> right? And he's got a big black mustache. And then the train's coming, and we're all going to see her cut into pieces by the train. And, but Dudley Do-Right runs out of the scenery into the back and comes up and unties her and yanks her off the tracks just in the nick of time. And so black and white, good and evil, are very, very prominent. We boo at Black Bart. We cheer at Dudley Do-Right. And so everything goes well. But the Bible says that the love of God is more nuanced than that. He even loves the Black Barts as much as he loves the Dudley Do-Rights and the Penelope who's tied to the track. God's love is everywhere. The Bible is not a melodrama, but many times I read it that way or we try to explain what's going on in those terms. And I want you to know that as you read the Bible, it is, God's love is so huge, it blows away our concepts of who deserves to die and who deserves to live. Who, what kind of mercy should be given. Um, so let's go on. Okay, do not, they do not know their right hand from the left. We're just going to conclude here in a second. Uh, what does it mean at the end of Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah, when God says, you love the plant, and uh, I, I grew it for you real quickly, and you fell in love with this thing because it's keeping you from, the, from the, the harsh sun as you're watching, hoping I'm still going to destroy Nineveh. But then I send a worm the next day. It eats the roots of the plant or cuts it off. It withers real quickly. And then God sends this scorching wind. And he said, you're really suffering, and you fell in love with the plant and wish all these things haven't gone wrong. And I'm wanting to show you, you love these temporary things, but I love these people who are eternal. Every, as C.S. Lewis said, I've never met a mortal person. Everybody's immortal. They're going to go either to be in the presence of God after death or away from the presence of God. And so how can you love temporary things, Jonah, as, as much as you do and not understand the eternal things that I love? So when they say they, they don't know their right hand from the left, it was a euphemism in those days. It was a saying to say these people are lost, a figure of speech. They're spiritually blind. They have lost their way. The Ninevites haven't a clue as to the source of their problems and what to do about them. And that's God's mercy. He loves people, even terrorist people, to the extent that saying they don't understand the source of their pain. They don't understand the source of their murderous hearts. They don't understand. They think by killing and raping and pillaging, things are going to get right for them. And really, on the whole earth, without God's presence, because our sin has separated us from him, don't know the right hand from the left. 
Now, when you walk with God, when you give your heart to God, I want you to know immediately you don't know your right, you don't get this knowledge back of your right from your left. You start to get pictures of it. You start to understand you're forgiven. And as you walk with God over the years, you begin to understand the source of your problems. You begin to understand the problem in your heart. You meet, God gets down to bedrock. There was an illustration given in a book of what was going on with Jonah. When they built the interstate system in America in the 50s and early 60s, there was a place in New York that was left unfinished of, I don't know if it, what interstate number it was, but for years and years, they could not finish the interstate over this area because it was swamp. Every time they put pillars in to hold up the interstate bridge over this swamp, they thought they got them down to bedrock and they'd wait a few weeks and the pillars would start to move in this swamp. They couldn't keep them down. They couldn't keep them solid. So they'd have to drill deeper and deeper in this swamp until they got the pillars down. And it took a few years to actually get the pillars all the way down to bedrock. And once they got to bedrock, they were able to complete the interstate over this area. It's the same thing about Jonah's heart. He thought he understood the grace of God when he's in the belly of the whale, but God has to drill deeper. There's still something wrong in his heart. There's still something he doesn't understand about God's love. He still wants the Ninevites uh, judged. He still, God, so he sends him a plant. Let me show you what's, what's going on, how much I love people and how much you have discounted people. You love this plant more than people. And he keeps drilling down. And the book ends. We don't know, did Jonah really get it? Because it ends with this question mark. There's 120,000 people in this city that don't know their right hand from their left and so many animals too. Question mark, like, shouldn't I have mercy on them? And we don't know the answer. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Or is there another slide? Jonah and Jesus. Yeah, let's talk about this. Jesus is a prophet that Jonah never was. Jonah did not weep for the people of Nineveh. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. Jesus was heartbroken for the lostness of the people of Jerusalem. He asked the Father to forgive them. It was not that he hadn't did it was not that they hadn't done anything wrong because they did. They crucified Jesus. Or else they would not have needed forgiveness. Because Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So they needed forgiveness. But he was heartbroken over the lostness of the people of Jerusalem. Second to the last bullet point, Jonah goes outside the city to watch for its destruction. Jesus goes outside the city to die and save the city. There is a great parallel, and this is why Jesus quotes the name of Jonah and the story of Jonah multiple times in the gospel because Jesus comes to complete what Jonah in his natural sense could not do. Jonah went to watch for destruction. Jesus goes out to die for forgiveness. So Jesus becomes the ultimate prophet. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater. You ask for a sign. Though Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I will spend three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, but I will rise again for the forgiveness and everlasting life of all people. So I just love that contrast. Jonah sitting on this hill, some boards over his head, a dead plant hanging over the boards, a scorching wind blowing the, the boards apart, and Jonah still mad, and God saying, don't you understand I love these people? And Jesus willingly going outside the city being crucified on a cross for the love of all these people to win their hearts. Okay, let's go on. God is 100% merciful and 100% justice at the same time. It only can be seen and understood in Jesus. Jonah didn't have that view that how could God be 100% merciful and also 100% justice? We kind of, I kind of think of God like, well, half the time, 50% merciful, 50% justice, that makes a whole. But really, he's 100-100 all the time. We have to understand, yes, there, God describes himself to Moses. We read that, that I will not, the guilty will not go unpunished. But he's also 100% merciful. Jonah did not have the advantage of viewing God's justice and mercy at the cross of Christ. All justice has been given out by God, and all mercy is available at the same time. And that's what happened on the cross. 100% justice was paid by Jesus' crucifixion. And so when, we, when we're still waiting for people to get justice, 
we are forgetting that they can receive mercy because the justice has already been paid. God's already done that judgment. He wishes none to perish, none to die. Okay, let's go on. I don't know if they're... So multiple touches from God. Jonah was on a journey with God to learn his love and grace. He needed more than one touch from God to understand God's mercy, love, and grace. And may I say, we all need multiple touches. He needed multiple touches from God, just like the man in Mark 8, to 25. They came to Bethsaida, that was the pool, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eye and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. In other words, very fuzzy. Something's not right. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. That's what happened to Jonah. And I believe that's what's happening to all of us if we let God do that. Multiple touches till we see like God sees, till we love like God loves, till we dispense mercy like God dispenses mercy, and as we become his people. And this is the greatest message to me of Jonah, is God is still at work in me. God is still touching me, still bringing up my prejudices, still destroying my idols, still wanting me to love, live, see, talk, and be like him. And, those, and so I'm like the blind man. I see things like trees. Then maybe I see, yeah, there's a head. Oh, yeah, now I can see an ear. I begin to see mankind like Jesus sees mankind. All right. I don't know if that might be the last one. Is it? Oh, yeah. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and stop on that one. And uh, John Newton talks about that later. But I think that's uh, how I want to just kind of wrap up our time in Jonah is that uh, the, the big question everybody asks is who's the author of Jonah? Because it ends with that question mark. Aren't you going to love, you love the plant, don't you see how I love the 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? Scholars conclude the only person that could have written this book and left all the warts and flaws still visible of Jonah is Jonah himself. Jonah himself would be the only one to write of a prophet and leave him still unfinished in God. Other people of that day, when they wrote about prophets, they, the prophets were the heroes. The prophets were the men of God. They wouldn't leave their prophets so exposed of saying, Jonah still didn't get it. At the end of this book, we have no assurance that Jonah stood up from that place on the hill and said, you're right. I love this plant. I loved all these things here, but those are eternal people. And now you showed me what you love, Lord, and I will love them like you love. There's no resolution there. There's no, we have no conviction completely that he got it. But this means most likely Jonah did get it. Jonah got it because he was able to write about it. If you were writing the story of your life and you left it at an uncompleted place, we would have to conclude that you were completed because you had enough guts to expose who you weren't. And that eventually your identity wasn't in the description of who you weren't. It was in the description of who you'd become. And so Jonah, we believe Jonah is, is somehow, in, in, if there was a chapter 5, he began to function as a prophet like God wanted him to. And I also believe that's because Jesus quotes him so much that he has to have that confidence that Jonah really understood the heart of God eventually. So I don't know where you are today, and I know where I am. And I, uh, I started off today by saying, it's like I'm just understanding this stuff for the first time in my life. And I've been preaching the Word of God for 40 years, but I realize how unmerciful I've been, how full of self-righteousness, how... I've been like, get him. How I've been mad, angry at God because it didn't go the way I thought it should go. And uh, so I just wondered if you'd be as vulnerable to open up your heart to God and say, Lord, wherever I'm like Jonah, will you take me, would you be merciful without a storm? That maybe it doesn't have to come as a storm, but maybe it'll come as a plant 
that God will show us his ways and his mercy in his life. So Lord Jesus, you went outside the city of Jerusalem to die on the cross. Not with, un, with no assurance that your sacrifice would be accepted by the people you died for. And Lord, we sit here by the grace of God that somehow you've pursued us. You sent the Holy Spirit to win us, to convince us that we've been forgiven thousands and thousands bags of gold of sin so that we can forgive the one that owes us a penny who has sinned against us. And then we can be merciful, loving, compassionate people. And God, I thank you that you are a God who's emotionally attached to us. That you are not just Elohim, um, a generic description for the God that created all things, but that you are Yahweh, the God who chooses people, who loves people, and wants to use people to show your love. And so, Lord, wherever we are today, please come and finish your work in us. Paul said that he was confident of this very thing, that you, Jesus, who had begun a good work in us, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Test us. Try us. Know our anxious thoughts. Purify our hearts. Lead us in the way of everlasting life. Lord, take away our self-righteousness. May we never get up from our chair or our knees, reading your word or praying, feeling self-righteous. God, if we're doing that, send a plant over our chairs and then send the worm so that we can be shaken back into reality that we all live by mercy and grace. Thank you for the life of Jonah. Thank you that he exposed himself and all his flaws so that we can be more like you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.